0: Thanks for tuning in to this special telemedicine edition of the Data Point podcast. This episode is one of several leading up to the annual meeting of the American Telemedicine Association in New Orleans, Louisiana on April 14th through 16th. Check out the conference. I think you're going to want to be there. And if you don't believe me, these next several episodes are going to try and prove it to you. For thousands of years, medicine was practiced by a patient and a physician being together in a room. In the 1990s, a young dermatologist who was using a digital camera for the first time in his practice was struck by the idea that that might not always be the case and that the practice of medicine might no longer be bound by space and time. Hello and welcome to Data Point, the podcast where we talk about all the ways data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare. Our guest today is Dr. Joe Kavidar from the Center for Connected Health at Partners Healthcare in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Kavidar has gone from being that young dermatologist to being one of the leading voices in determining how telehealth is going to change the way that care is delivered. My interview with Joe covered a lot of history, but most of the focus is on where he believes we're going to be in the future, in a future that's not as distant as you might think. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Joe Kavidar just as much as I did. Joe, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you, Greg, for inviting me. I'm delighted to be with you. I'm feeling a lot of pressure given that you're a fellow podcaster, so I'm going to try and live up to your high standards.
1: Um, uh, again,
0: I'm I'm delighted to
1: be in the uh, flip side, the the other seat, if you will. So <laughs> let's let's have some fun.
0: All right, sounds good. Um, I always like to start off not just by talking about the what you're doing, but who you are and how you came to be there. Um, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sketching in a little bit of background for us in terms of your career, your work with connected health, um, and how it's positioned you for the work that you do today.
1: Well, thanks for asking. Uh, It is a fun story to tell. I uh, uh, am a dermatologist by training. Uh, And uh, for several years, right after my residency, I actually spent time uh, as a laboratory investigator and did a little bit of clinical work. And Hmm. during that time, it was the late 80s, early 90s, uh, we were starting to use Macintosh computers and things in the lab. And I I was quite fond of, of what technology could do for me, but I have no training as an engineer or software engineer or any of that. And then mm. uh, I had a career transition. I was uh, getting out of the lab, exploring other opportunities in the mid-90s and stumbled really upon a project where I was looking at the uh, utility of a new, te- new technology at the time called digital imaging, Parenthetically, we we used a, a camera that was about one megapixel and uh, cost twelve thousand dollars, and oh so that goodness. was the level of of uh, technology. And we were trying to decide whether those images would be of diagnostic quality in dermatology. And while I was studying that as a as a clinical research project, I really uh, I kind of feel like. Uh, being John Malkovich on the 13th and a half floor or something, <laughs> I fell into this world where I thought, my goodness, we've, we've restricted our view of clinical care for centuries because we had to, arguably. But we restricted it to what we can do in a room with, with a person uh, in real time. Yeah. And this technology gave me the glimpse of what the future could be like if we separated time and place. And I said, we could do so much uh, to enhance care delivery, enhance quality, change the game if we just uh, take away that assumption that we have to be in the same room at the same time to get something done. And when I had that glimmer of uh, excitement uh, in about 1995, I just never looked back. And a couple things happened along the way. One was that I uh, determined fairly early on, as much as I love my specialty, that, that we really had to broaden beyond dermatology. So we, we started to work in chronic illness fairly early on, heart failure, mm-hmm. diabetes, hypertension. And um, and then I had the good fortune of having our, at the time, our chief information officer, John Glasser, who who really shared that vision uh, and said, you know, come, come on the IT team. And for about 15 years, that was a really good place for us to incubate some of these ideas. He was a a very good uh, mentor and and also a a very good uh, funder. He had a sundry fund. He kept us uh, funded when we weren't able to get grants or foundation uh, work or what have you. And then uh, when he left the organization, I moved under our chief clinical officer. That was about four or five years ago, Hmm. which was another really important move because we became not a technology but a care model and that's where we've lived since. So, again, not to take up all the time with my background, but that's sort of a, uh, a bit of a journey in how I got here. And I'll just emphasize again that the the vision of time and place independent care, I would say, is still in its infancy. 25 years later, we've achieved a lot, but we have such a long ways to go. And uh, we probably will come back to this. But one of the metrics I use to, to get myself out of bed in the morning is... Uh, how many doctors are using uh connected alpha telehealth in their practice. And right now it's about 10 or 12%. So I, I wow. think we have a long way to go still.
0: I guess I I'm surprised it's that low. Um, but nonetheless, exactly. I have to, I've got to believe it's really a, a relatively rare thing for a health system like partners to have started making those investments as early as they did. Um, and certainly, for a clinician like you to have spent that much time in the technology realm, uh, it has got to be a, a fairly unusual thing. Was that a hard decision to make initially?
1: Well, I I tell people uh, that two personality traits were uh, I think beneficial in the beginning, and 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 these are self awareness aspects that I picked up on on later about my personality. At the time, I, I wasn't so as self aware. So one of them was. That I had this—it's a little bit of a—I don't know how you describe it—but I had this idea that uh, if I learned anything, anything that I learned, I must be the last person on the planet to learn it. (laughs) So I came up with this insight, and I thought, "Oh my God, I better get going because I'm probably late to the game." Of course, I was again 25 years ahead of the market, but I was motivated by my own, I guess, insecurity in that way. And the other personality trait that served me well in the beginning was my. I guess Vermont roots. Uh, uh, my my mom and dad were both very uh, straightforward, uh, humble people. Uh, if they said something, they 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 spoke plainly, and and you knew what you were dealing with. I didn't deal with much nuance growing up. So when I got into the business world, in the beginning, I had these concepts, and people were showing me the door in a nice way, and I didn't even realize it. So I just kept coming back for more meetings. <laughs> Um,
0: because no one said no. And I think both of those traits helped, helped me out in the beginning. I love that. And I, I also think it's really interesting, and you touched on this as you were uh, introducing yourself, the fact that Connected Health has moved from an initial placement in a technology organization to now being a part of the clinical organization. Can you talk a little bit about why that transition has been so important and, and what it really signifies?
1: Well, I'll go back to a phrase I use. It's a it's a it's a really sort of anchoring concept that I've carried with me for that quarter century that I've been at this, and and it's the concept that we're talking about care delivery models. We're not talking about technologies, mm-hmm. and I think most people who've had experience with uh, technologies in healthcare will agree that if you if a technology is a, a hammer looking for a nail or or if you lead with a technology because it's cool and interesting, but you don't have a a really good use for it, that they, those projects tend to fail. And I remember in the beginning uh, when I was a pseudo expert because I was just starting, people would come to me and say, what we're building a a new wing, Uh, what, how should we wire it? You know, they would always want to know what, what, so what vendor should we use for the video? That kind of thing. And I said, Mm -hmm. well, you know, let's back up and talk about what you actually want to achieve and what's the business case and so forth. And so uh, honestly, I I got into the IT organization because it it was, it was an opportunistic move for me. Our CIO wanted to take this on and no one else did. But as soon as, and he left the organization and we're still really friendly, but as soon as our current chief clinical officer came came on board, he was a telehealth believer because he had spent time in a rural health system before he came to Partners. Ah. And he said, I want it it under me. And I I was very pleased. To me, it was another um, adoption milestone that at the system level, there was an appreciation that this care model was uh, a part of our near-term future.
0: You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of healthcare companies, including hospitals and health systems, have developed some form of, let's call it an innovation function, for lack of a better term. But so many times it feels like a, a bolt-on uh, that's sort of a shiny object. That's really not what we're talking about with connected health. I know uh, you mentioned in our, our pre-interview discussion that there are – Several things that were really innovations that came out of the organization that are now really just, they're a part of the, the fabric of care delivery at Partners. And I'm wondering, could you talk to us a little bit about a couple of those things and what it's meant for you to be able to see those things come from, you know, the creation down to they are totally ingrained into the program?
1: Well, the first thing before I do that, I, I just want to caveat and say that uh, there, there are, I'm privileged to work in an organization that, that has a lot of really bright people. And mm. so I, I want to make sure that I'm. Uh, it's clear when we talk about these things that I'm not claiming credit for their dissemination or, or even for the original ideas. I was a, a catalyst for many years. I, I had a team of people. We were um, doing things in an organized way in the beginning, uh, this is another thing that I often emphasize, be- because there was so much uh, skepticism that this care model was actually going to be of any quality. We we, we spent so much time on outcomes and quality in the beginning that um, we-, we ended up kind of putting together the foundation for a lot of the work that's going on now, not because we were, frankly, academically inclined, but because we felt like we had to prove that case uh, to our colleagues, so they would adopt. Um, and so, I mean, the things that are hot right now, I think probably your listeners would all agree that the uh, the currency du jour is, is uh, video uh, visits, usually for follow-up. Uh, one of the biggest uh, use cases is mental health, and we can come back to that. And another one is uh, urgent care. Uh, if you think about the, um, the retail clinic environment 12, 15 years ago, it's similar to that. There's a very limited uh, set of things that uh, quality experts will tell you. For instance, sinusitis or urinary tract infection really don't need an exam to do a quality a diagnosis and prescribe. And so we, we've we been able to do those. And the milestone that I think is is worth mentioning on on all of this is that uh, we recently uh, decided to use our internal, Internal, the the health plan that we own uh, called Always Health Partners to to be our own um, third party administrator for our employees' benefits. Now, Partners employs seventy thousand people and and they also have thirty thousand dependents, so it's a hundred thousand lives in aggregate. And uh, and sure enough, everyone gets the same open enrollment package in November. And and I opened mine up and right there and bold print is virtual urgent care and and uh, Telemental health as two options that they're pushing with no copay uh, because they believe that both of those will both uh, be enhancements to their members and save them money over the long run and that was a that was a warm feeling because uh, I don't think we really envisioned I know we didn't when we started it we had used video conferencing equipment that required three ISDN lines and mm-hmm. it was cost sixty thousand dollars a pop and so to have it in the palm of your hand and to be able to to conduct real care uh, feels like a real milestone, um, and so we're we're off to the races now. Uh, I guess I would just sort of caught us as as a coda, just mention that I I think those video engagements are the currency du jour, but we're rapidly moving to asynchronous interactions, uh, which are if. If uh, your listeners don't aren't familiar with the lingo, it's it's really the analogy would be FaceTiming your doctor versus exchanging an email with your doctor. Not mm-hmm. not not that we use either of those technologies because they're not secure, but that's analogous. And so when you bring in the asynchronous, you really can start to again it's time and place independent, so you can become much more efficient. And uh, for those conditions that are amenable to it, and. And so that's actually taking off like wildfire for things like blood pressure check-ins and mm-hmm. a whole host of things that are primary care follow-up. And so then the the next phase, and and I can probably uh, uh, end on this note. The next phase is bringing in things in the front end like symptom checkers and chatbots to tee up for you, the consumer. And this is I love this vision, and I know we'll get there. So that when you come on to the system. You just put in what's, what your challenge is, yep. and we direct you. We direct you either to virtual, we direct you to urgent care, we direct you to the emergency room or to your own primary care practice. We know what the wait times are in all those places. We know how to get a ride for you. If you actually need to come in, we can help mm. get an Uber or a Lyft. It's a completely integrated digital experience, and um, virtual is uh, a part uh, of that, but, it's, again, it's one component.
0: That is a. Yeah, that is a really exciting vision. And you just teed up about 17 things that I want to start unpacking a little bit. Um, Great. As, as we do that, I want to take a quick break. Uh, we will Great. be right back, though, with Dr. Joe Kavidar. Please stick around. Hey everybody, this is Reed Smith. And this is Chris Boyer. And we are co-hosts on a show called Touchpoint, which is a podcast that's dedicated to the discussions on digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, not only for just hospitals, but health systems and physician practices. In every episode, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on digital tools, solutions, strategies, and other things that are impacting the healthcare industry today. And while you listen to this show, we would certainly love you to check out ours. All you have to do is swing on over to touchpoint.health for more information and also some of the other shows that are featured on the Touchpoint Media Network. And we are back with Dr. Joe Kavidar. Joe, before we left for the break, you teed up a really uh, compelling vision uh, for a future uh, continuum of care uh, involving people being able to come in through a website or their mobile phone and, you know, engage with a chat bot and be triaged into into the right places. Um, and this fascinating combination of uh, human interaction with uh, virtual interaction, digital with real life. Talk to us a little bit about when when this kind of vision is coming together, you have to be able to, it's one thing to have the vision and it's exciting to be able to say those things, but you're also part of a, as you say, a massive health system, you know, 70,000 employees. How does, do these kind of telehealth initiatives actually make their way into different hospitals and clinics, uh, and how different does that make the problem that you're trying to solve?
1: Well, it's a really interesting, uh, question. And I, and I don't know that there's any one size fits all answer. I, I, as I think back, uh, there's, it's a little bit like a, uh, it's a little bit like cooking with a recipe. So you sprinkle in a little bit of this and you add a pinch of that. And so some of the ingredients for success are, uh, uh, senior leadership that, whatever stage of adoption you're at, senior leadership that sees the next phase and and supports it. And we've had that consistently for the 25 years I've been doing this. Again, various personalities, various, I have to be honest with you, and your list is not every CEO prioritized this in the way I would have. Mm -hmm. But but again, they're looking at it from a, a different perspective. But every single one of them, Saw the value and kept the programs alive, so there's that. Uh, I think we're blessed uh, at at our organizations and the Harvard teaching hospitals with a culture that supports innovative thinking and experimentation, so that always helps yeah, and then things like uh, a big push about six or seven years ago to take on risk contracts with our uh reimbursers, our payers. And mm-hmm. and uh, that, that was a, in the case of the government, it was a forerunner of the ACO model. In the case of our local payers, they all had different flavors. And again, the leadership of that uh, segment of our business was always committed to using telehealth as a tool to help manage those risk contracts. So for several years before anybody was reimbursing in the private sector we were paying doctors to do this kind of work internally because people saw the opportunity to streamline care to do better care transitions to to keep people out of the high cost part of the system ie the emergency room and the inpatient mm-hmm. service using these tools and they believed it and and so uh, yeah every now and then you check in and see if you're you're somehow close to the ROI, but but they fundamentally believed that this was the right thing to do. And they also knew that because it is so, initially it's so disrupted to the way we provide care
0: mm-hmm. that
1: you have to get your hands dirty and experiment with it. So I think that's a really important uh, part of it. And uh, so we, my team, again, there is multiple people, in a large organization like this, our telehealth champions and, and multiple people have uh, have a, a right to, to being credited with innovations and moving things forward. But our team was simply trying to stay five to 10 years ahead of that market and test out things that we, we knew would be valuable. So as a quick example, 10 years ago, we were working on how could we get data from uh yeah. blood pressure cuffs and sensors and activity monitors and scales mm-hmm. and whatnot and and display it in the electronic record for our clinicians. Uh, it took us a good 10 years to figure that out. And so we, we started at the right time. And, and uh, sometimes that's uh, what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, what's happening next? And we, for instance, before our break, we mentioned a little bit AI and chatbots and, and that, that's a really important part of our future. But man, if we don't get it right, we're going to be like uh, the the, the service experience you have with, uh, I don't know, pick your favorite telecom provider, whoever it might be, where you call and you you really want to talk to a person because you know your question and you can't get a person, right? Yep. We can't do it that way. We have to do it in a way where, and and I'm sure you've also had experience I have with companies that the robot starts you off, but they can get you to a person pretty quickly.
0: Yep, exactly. Uh, if you need
1: that. And <laughs> and so we, we we have to we we have a big challenge in front of ourselves. People are afraid of AI. They think their jobs are in danger. Um, but we have to embrace it. And we have to move it forward. I'll, I'll leave you with one, I think, really compelling point because pe- people seem to think that this is an option, and mm. I would just say it's not. That uh, uh, Here's a couple of statistics that I think frame it. In, in 2020, for the first time in history, we'll have more people over 65 than under 5.
0: Mm.
1: And that trend continues such that by 2050, it'll be twice as many people, 16% of the world's population over 65 and only 7% under 5. Wow. Now, I keep mentioning the under five part because as we get older, we need more healthcare care services yep. and we're literally going to run out of people. Um, as I said in the beginning, if we if we demand that the only way you can get care is one to one in an office, we can't scale that if we're running out of young people. So right. we have to get this right. We We, we have no choice and we have. A decade or so to figure it out. There's a lot of bright people and a lot of innovative companies, so I'm sure we will get it right. But we don't have a choice. It's not like it's a uh, interesting uh, a curiosity. It's going to be right. a part of care delivery, and we we have to do it right.
0: You know, you said something important though when you talked about partners' willingness to begin taking on risk. You know, that sort of pre-ACO model um, the really i mean it gave partners skin in the game to be able to test out some of these things that that you believed in i know that the environment for reimbursement has moved forward a little bit over the last few years but it's certainly not um a, a cut and dried scenario that there's been a you know sort of a an approval from a payer perspective whether that's a government or a private payer that this new model of of uh you know care delivery and the care continuum in the, that that you described it hasn't been you know fully signed off and i guess i'm curious what your thoughts are about you know how far are we from being able to you know to to handle reimbursement at that level for organizations that don't have either you know the scale or the vision or the resource or whatever that partners has but still wants to be able to implement some of the solutions you're talking about?
1: Uh, well, J- January 1st of 2019 was, was a bit of a, an important milestone in that regard. Uh, I've, I've had the privilege of co-chairing uh, the uh, AMA's Digital Medicine Payment Advisory Group. And with that group, we've been able to uh, put through several New billing codes into the system, and there's a Byzantine process which i I won't bore your listeners with on how they get into the system but but three or four or actually I think five or six new ones are currently in place for things like a a, a virtual uh, exchange of like for instance, a patient sending me an image as a dermatologist or mm-hmm. remote monitoring of a chronic illness so they're they're in there the The current state, however, is that medicare is the only one paying for them. These these codes just hit the books five or six days ago, so it's quite mm. new. And um, the typical timeframe for other commercial payers to follow the lead of Medicare, is it takes two or three years. So I think the short answer to your question is two or three years. But, but I would recommend any healthcare organization that happens to be listening to start as soon as possible, because as I alluded to earlier, it's not just reimbursement, there's workflow, there's a lot of things, there's yeah. EMR yeah. coding changes to make. These things take time, and uh, and we all want to be ready for this new world. Uh, another, you know, when I talk about not an option, an- another angle that I like to point out is that the, uh, it's a little bit ironic, but uh, the demographic that we're all courting uh, relatively young, healthy people, mm-hmm. all expect a digital experience. And um, if we don't start to address that, they've all—not all, but the majority of them—has said that they're they're not loyal to any particular brand. They just want an experience. So we're we're all in danger of losing that market share if we don't come up to the plate and start to offer them a compelling digital experience. So that's just another yeah. reason that we have to experiment with this stuff and get going. Reimbursement is a blessing. I'll, I'll just mention though, cause sometimes people feel it's a, it's a schizophrenia between, between uh, taking risk and, and then sending these codes in. And, and it, it is a little bit, but the way they tie together uh, Greg is that we, when we can Uh, received of these risk contracts, we never on purpose uh, addressed how the ground level provider gets paid. Mm. And the ground level provider only gets paid by, by checking boxes with these codes. And so even though we're at risk as a system, Uh, people won't adopt telehealth as part of that unless they get paid. And so these codes are really a way for us to document who's doing work and compensate them accordingly, Mm -hmm. whether you're a risk contract or not. So that's one of the reasons that I got involved with the AMA uh, when they invited me was because I felt like either way, however this goes, we, we have to create these opportunities for people to get compensated for the work that they do.
0: Absolutely. And I, I want to close with one final question, Joe. You talked about the fact that, you know, over a period of 10 years, you your team had put a lot of effort into trying to figure out how different kinds of data can be integrated into the health record, you know, blood pressure cuff, uh, you know, scales, activity, Um that's still a pretty big problem for a lot of organizations. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh partner's solution to that problem and where you see it headed in the future.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly start by saying we, we, we have not perfected it. Uh, it's still, uh, there's too many steps uh, for, for our patient
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and there's too And our integration with, we're we're an Epic shop. Our integration with Epic is still not ideal. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've come a long way. I don't want to disparage my team and the work they've done. They've done wonderful work and we've come a long way. But to really make this seamless, we have a few more steps. So the way we do it now is that uh, we use an infrastructure provider called Validic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I characterize them as an API farm. I think they probably would prefer to have me say it differently. But they've done a lot of really good work to aggregate the APIs for, I don't know, 200 and something consumer devices. Uh, and so we use them as a part of the front end. And then on the back end, a InterSystems systems uh, technology called HealthShare. Mm-hmm. Allows us to take those data from the consumer devices and display them in the context of Epic, uh, not directly integrated into the record yet, but as a pop-up window. Uh-huh. And we've democratized it now. I mean, we've we've gone through again several iterations, but the current iteration is that you, as a clinician, uh, can invite your patient to share any data from any device and they go through uh, a mobile app that we created, or they can go through our patient uh, portal if Mm -hmm. if they choose to set up through the Validic connection and and link their device so that the data flows into the system. I just want to hasten to add that, because if people are hearing this for the first time, you'll probably note that I broke one of my rules and I'm talking about technology, but (laughs) the, uh, the key to success with these programs is engagement on the clinician side.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: the 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 quickest way to get your patient to stop uploading is to not acknowledge that they're uploading. Yep, because uh, it's more work for them. And and yes, the feedback loop helps them take care of themselves. But if they think that the doctor or the nurse doesn't care, that's a real downer. So. You have to do more than just review the data. you have to engage with them, bring it up at their visits, send them yep. messages over the patient portal um, and they'll respond and generally, when you create that what I call the motivational overlay to the data uh round tripping of the uh, feedback loop rather of the data, mm-hmm. then you get you can get really good care outcomes but just just sending data along the pipe, as much of an achievement as that's been for us, is is not particularly helpful in terms of, of getting better outcomes.
0: I was just going to remark that having the physicians be sort of the gatekeeper there uh, makes a ton of sense for a couple of reasons. One is the one you're alluding to, which is if the doctor isn't feeling ready to handle that or doesn't feel it's going to be particularly valuable in a the case of a certain patient, they don't have to extend the invitation. But the other is that there's so many different ways that that kind of data could be used by a clinician and in a, a patient in the course of their relationship that it makes a lot of sense to, to have the physician driving that and almost, I, I hope it's okay to say, kind of prescribing that as a part of the, the patient's treatment. Um, I, I love that. And it seems like a tremendous achievement. It feels like you've created a platform and now the buildings that can go up on that platform – could be things that we don't even imagine today.
1: Well, thank you for that. And, I, and that is our goal. I, I, um, you're completely right. That is how we, and when we... When we started it off, we were very programmatic. We're going to go into a primary care practice and we're going to do blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And what we learned is that, that that isn't really the best way to do this. It's really to give the opportunity to the patients and the clinicians and let them figure out the use cases
0: Absolutely. Well, Joe, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Uh, I know that my listeners are going to really appreciate it. For people that want to find out more about you and the Center for Connected Health, I will certainly include links to the website in our show notes. Uh, But uh, why don't you tell folks how they can find more information about you and the work that you're doing?
1: Uh, I think the easiest
0: way is to go to our website, connectedhealth.partners.org. Fantastic. And uh, so, so appreciate it and look forward to seeing you in real life very soon. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review and share it with your social network. It means a lot if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about
1: this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.